this is what my daughter at Spokane is reading today. Abolish the business major. <laughs> there you go. She's in the honors program, and that's the conversation they're having. What? Why are they? Why are they talking about that? What's it about? Well, um, I mean, we'd be foolish to not think that education is is competitive. Yeah. Right. I mean, and so all of the disciplines are competing for students. Yeah. Um, in in a place like ours, a place like Spokane, another Jesuit school that is a social justice institution. Yeah. Um, you know, we have folks that value the art of doing an education, right. As opposed to the job you get because you got an education. Got education. Yeah. And so, uh, there's very, uh, ill, there's a lot of ill will and lots of institutions, liberal arts institutions against fields that career you, uh, prepare you only for a job. Hmm. Interesting. And that's how business is seen. I want to, I want to hear more about that. The following is a conversation with Dr. Ken Sagendorf. He is the founder and director of the Innovation Center of Anderson School of Business and Computing at Regis University. Understandably, families and students have begun to question the value of a business degree. How can one learn the true skills of business while sitting in a classroom? Is it really worth all the time and the money? I asked Dr. Ken Segendorf this question, and he was kind enough to share his thoughts. This is the Better You Podcast. My name is Michael McKelvey. To support this podcast, please subscribe if you find it helpful. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Ken Sagendorf. So Ken, you started the Innovation Center here at the college. You've written and published books on learning and education. What is innovation to you, and is this something that can be taught? Uh, that's a fantastic question. Thanks for having me, Michael. The um... I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a quick story and, and in post, you can get rid of all the stories, but that's just kind of how, how I, how I communicate. But, um, you know, I was working here on, on Regis's campus and I was on the strategic committee to put our business school together in 2015. And one day that Dean came and he said, I want you to start an innovation center for me. And I, you know, I just kind of laughed and I said, you have the wrong guy. And he, you know, he, he convinced me that he didn't, but then I said, and I don't like this word innovation. Yeah. He's like, well, why not? And I said, well, innovation, when you say that word, everybody's got a synonym, right? Usually it involves some level of technology. It's something the world hasn't yet seen. Like it's just brand new, blow your mind kind of things. Um, and he's like, okay. And I said, and you know, most, most people, when they think about innovation, think about disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. and, and disruptive innovation, I mean, I love the concept of it. But, you know, in my lifetime, computing and the internet is the only disruptive innovation. It has changed our lives completely. I wake up, I grab my cell phone, I'm on the internet doing stuff. I mean, I'm not my, the coffee's still brewing, right? Yeah, I mean, we're I'm cyborgs just, at this right? point. And I pretty much am on it till I go to bed. Yeah. But it has changed fundamentally how we, how we work, eat, and live. Mm -hmm. um, we're, none of us are old enough, especially in this room, for the other two, which by the way, are automobiles and refrigeration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have no idea what the next one's going to be. Yeah. So I get on this roll with that Dean and I'm, and I'm spouting off about this. And then I say, and another thing, um, there's no money in disruptive innovation for quite a while. You know, personal computers, uh, this is always, I always ask people, when did they come out? They came out in 1972. Mm -hmm. No one's really buying them till 1990, 92. Um, Listen, I went, I went to college. We didn't have computers. I went with a typewriter. Um, and that was in 1990. So, you know, uh, 
I said, you can't have a business school hunting for unicorns and not making money. No one's coming to that business school. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, huh, then you come to find it. <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, like that's, that's an awesome kind of, but a responsibility problem. at the end, of but the a day. responsibility. Absolutely. So, um, that's what I did. Uh, we defined innovation for Regis, uh, in the Innovation Center when we founded it. And we were working with a collection of alumni and having these panel discussions. And and one of the things our alumni said is when they're hiring our graduates to work with them, they, they were very nice. They said, you know, you all in higher ed, you're, you're good at um, critical thinking. And quite honestly, you can look at every single college and university under the sun and critical thinking is an outcome of theirs. It's one of ours too, by the way, here at Regis. Um, but they said what we need more of and what you all don't do well is to develop some creative thinking and especially systems thinking. They said the most expensive cost in any of our businesses is hiring someone that comes up with a solution for the thing for them today. It doesn't work for the person at the desk next to them or down the hall, and it typically won't work tomorrow, next week, or next year. So we end up doing the work over and over and over again. So if you could please help people think in systems. So um, when we talk about innovation at Regis, those are the first tenets, three kinds of thinking, critical, creative, and systems thinking. Critical is only on the way to systems thinking. And then we borrow four, uh, and so that came directly from our alumni. And then because we are a Jesuit school, and at the time our business school was founded on a principle of stewardship um, to help business become stewards of society to improve the quality of life on earth. I mean, this was very different. It wasn't a leadership school, it was a stewardship school. That meant paying attention to planetary sustainability and environmental sustainability, as well as fiscal sustainability. Um, it, it, it just meant being a different kind of business school because we're the only Jesuit school here in the Rocky Mountain area. And so we had uh, we were playing with all of this Jesuit work in that stewardship vein in defining what stewardship really meant. And so we borrowed the work of Chris Lowney, who was a Jesuit priest who left the Jesuit order to go to work for J.P. Morgan. They immediately put him in management training. And he was like, oh, like we already did all of this stuff in the Jesuits. So he wrote a book called Heroic Leadership. And I have the subtitle something like uh, Leadership Lessons from a 450-Year-Old Global Company, which was the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about, uh, you know, things begin from self-awareness. Um, and frankly, a lot of institutions think that's where we end our job. And I would say that's our beginning. Self-awareness, ingenuity, love, and heroism. I'm very proud to say that our innovation definition is probably the only one that I have ever seen that has love as part of that definition because we're looking at these big systems and we're trying to we're trying to tackle big issues. And then finally, all of that's wrapped in an alumni companionship model. Companionship's a very Jesuit principle. So you're walking with the alumni, you're walking with people in the community, you're walking with one another as you're looking for these next things the world needs. So everything we do about teaching marketing, marketing, teaching entrepreneurship is about finding a problem that people genuinely have, not developing a product and pushing it. I think there's this sentiment that maybe exists out there, and we had a chance to talk about this a little bit before. Yeah. Uh, the ROI for college has become a larger conversation, I think, this past decade than any previous decade. And there's this obvious financial investment that's there, but there's also the time investment. Yes. You have to go for several years. And those are crucial years when you have a, uh, a fluid mind that has the ability to flex and learn perhaps better than maybe 20, 30 years down the road, right? And I think for degrees like engineering, uh, this return is a lot more straightforward, right? 
uh, or at least we think so for sure. We think so, right? Yeah. It, it, from from afar, you look at getting a degree in software engineering. It's pretty easy to see. Okay, you're probably going to have a job on the other side. You're probably going to make around this much, right. and this isn't really the case for business, right? There's maybe not that straightforwardness that exists for a business degree. And many are arguing, I think, that the skills you learn in business uh, are difficult to really digest while you're in school, at least to the same degree that you could get it working. So the most important skills potentially are just coming from when you're actually in business, right? So I guess I'm just curious, you know, as you kind of go through that definition of innovation, you know, how is business school worth the time and money from this opportunity cost frame that we're speaking to? And how does the Anderson College of Business address this? Yeah, uh, thank you. There, I think this is a misunderstanding in the land. And, and, I, and I'll tell you another story. My, my nephew just graduated from the University of Arkansas with a finance degree. And, and really his aunt, his, his mom and dad, my brother and sister-in-law, we talk all the time because I've been in higher education for the last 25 years, as well as doing a, a large collection of other things. But I watch who I think are very wise people look at institutions for their sons and daughters. And I say, oh, you know, you all, you have this impact on higher ed. You, you ask for a better gym, you ask for a better food in the dining hall, um, you ask for all of these things that are unrelated to the thing that you're actually paying for, but it becomes quite clear that they don't actually know what they're paying for. I, I mean, and so the question of ROI is first understanding what it is that you are paying for. Um, you mentioned a software engineering degree makes a lot of sense. You're going to get this job. You're going to make about this much money. The purpose of college is not to get you a job. The purpose of college is to prepare you for life. We hope you get a job too. Um, the, the external pressures have really forced colleges to tell you, you know, here's where you're going to be. Listen, I run our MBA also, and we have an ROI calculator on our website, which is flat Most out. Colleges do. Uh, what do I, what do I want to do? Um, what field do I want to do it in? You know, do I want to make more money? Do I want to become a manager? Um, do I want to, um, switch career fields? What fields do I want to do it in? And then it's based on our syllabi and our alumni's public data. And it will tell you, if you come to Regis, you'll get this much of a return mm -hmm. on that investment. Because we know that's the conversation. It is. But we're not preparing you actually for the first job. We're preparing you for the second, third, and fourth job. And, and, and here's really what we're doing, in, especially in an undergraduate education, is we are, we are flooding you with a collection of information with a collection of knowledge, with a collection of skills and a collection of experiences, ideally. And we're asking you to make sense of this, which I, you know, in, uh, Sam and I were talking about the, um, about the impact of COVID on, on, you know, I have young children that are in college and we're talking about the impact of COVID on them. And, you know, my kids call me all the time and I have to figure out, am I dad here or am I college professor dad? And, and sometimes I need to leave that part alone because they'll be like, the teacher didn't do this for me. It's not the teacher's job. The teacher's job is to facilitate an experience. And then you get to put it together and you get feedback on whether or not you're putting the puzzle together um, in, in a way that is going to be fruitful for you, for others, 
Um, and so in that way, it's not selfish. I mean, and that, that really is the experience that you're paying for in an undergraduate education. Um, and, you know, and that includes all the co-curricular stuff that comes flying in from the side, whether that is flat out joining a Greek house and, and drinking too much beer um, or, you know, um, going on a, a mission related trip to, to build a house after a hurricane yeah. and everything in between. All of those things are, are put together because in, in the best education, we are taking those and we're trying to make sense of what's going on in you and in the world around you and, and where you're going to choose to make your choices. So as you talk about undergraduate business education and what's the ROI on that and what, how do we do it specifically here at Regis, this idea of how can you pick out when, you, when and how you're going to make decisions. And so, you know, I used to work at a military academy, an American military academy, and, you know, we prepare those folks to be um, leaders in the American military no one really knows how they're going to react in war until mm. you go to war. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to, uh, simulate that. Yeah. Um, not a flight simulator for that. No, there's not. I mean, I mean, and I think there is, um, you know, a little bit of your argument is that if you go to work, you get that business simulator and that's going to teach you how to do these things that teaches you a way to do things like they've always been done. It actually doesn't empower you to see these other components that are going to come in and help make those kinds of decisions. And, and that goes to that systems thinking part of the innovation definition. And so can you teach people that definition of innovation? Um, just like you go to a gym to work out over time, this is what you're practicing. Um, just like you would practice medicine um, when you go to medical school. You're, you're, you're practicing these points of decision-making. Can you get the logic? I mean, I just, I just finished grading papers for this eight week one session and you know what I'm looking for? Not, did you get the stuff right? Cause the stuff is out there. It's free mm -hmm. more so than ever before. Content is available. We do not have all the information at a university. Uh, quite the contrary. It is out there. Mm -hmm. If you become good at Googling, you can find almost everything. You should be able to get your education for free. What you don't get is the extreme amount of feedback on putting the puzzle together and putting the pieces together. Right. Being able to follow the impacts of your decisions. That's one of the things I think we do really well in the business education here at Anderson is, you know, if I decide X, what does X look like on plus day one, plus day 10, plus year 10? Mm -hmm. And who does it impact? I mean, all of this conversation in the business world about uh, a movement from shareholder primacy to stakeholder concern. Like that's nice language, but the reality is why didn't Nike know that child labor was making its clothes in these conditions before? Um, and how do we not repeat those kinds of things? And so that stakeholder, the more things you can bring in, the more you understand kind of the stakeholder perspective of any business. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, this, this conversation of just, you know, ROI and, you know, what is it that I get in return for this experience, right? And you, you spoke to knowledge and how you can find this knowledge anywhere. But what's interesting, you know, in most domains, uh, that somehow hasn't been the answer to the problems, right? So, I mean, if, if getting more knowledge was the answer to the problem, we'd all have six packs and mansions by now. Indeed. Um, <laughs> but, but we don't, you know. Um, and I look at that in the financial realm, 
and you have more poor financial decision making in the last few years than really any period in the last couple decades uh, with you know the ability to day trade as easy as it is and as easy as it is to get information and so I think you know it, it does raise this other you know kind of question of okay if it's not knowledge that you are paying for or the access to knowledge which it maybe at some point it was at least that was maybe the primary purpose sure. why you went and it's transitioned onto this experience you know what types of experiences are you cultivating here just at Regis to really make that worth the investment because it is a serious investment and i think yeah. our intu our intuitions are they're not great at telling you know 30,000 versus 40,000 a year yeah. and like whether or not that value is there so i guess what are you doing at Regis to maybe bring that value if it's not in the form of just knowledge. Yeah. You know, I can give you some examples off the top of my head. One would be our business competition, the Regis Innovation Challenge. I mean, and this is, you can join it, you can be a student, have an idea for a business. I saw two freshmen last year walk in one month into school and they had a wonderful idea to bring community art and create a, a, a non-fungible token, an NFT. They blew the mind of my go of my judges. Um, honestly, my judges were uh, too mature. I'll use that word. Too mature to understand what an NFT even was. Yeah, um, I think many people are. Oh, I, I, it, 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 I mean, there's I mean, complexity. It, it should blow your mind. Yeah. you know what that means. What any cryptocurrency yeah. means. You should assume um, there's more to that than, totally. than than just the acronym. Um, but yes, that but that business competition is this idea that we. We surround you with an ever-extended ecosystem of support um, to model that companionship. Um, we introduce you to the resources that exist here in the city of Denver, and we open doors and make introductions to help that business. Um, our goal is to help that business start and operate to a point where it can hire other people and employ people and become parts of their community. That That's our goal. Um, we're not a kind of Silicon Valley startup competition where we just have a pitch and all we care about is the pitch. We actually want you to operate your own businesses. And and actually one of our alumni from that competition, one of the university's alumni, just opened their first full-blown mental alternative mental health clinic as a result of being in that competition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the that's a a, a kind of experience that you're paying for access to. Um my my colleague Abby Schneider, Dr. Abby Schneider, that runs our Seed Institute, that's Sustainable Economic, Sustainable Enterprise and Economic Development Institute. Um, she has Seed Fellowships, and those students spend the year. I mean, they're doing things right now like trying to convince the board to divest of fossil fuels. And listen, <laughs> can you make money invested in fossil fuels? Damn right you can. Yeah, you actually can make a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, helping the students understand that getting other humans to change your behaviors is not just based on what you think is right or wrong. Right. There's nuance in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to work harder to make more money for the institution? Like, that's like saying this thing is good, but if you could slow down to make it good. Right. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, they have to go back to the drawing board and, and keep refining what, what sustainability means, what it can mean for the institution and how other people, just not people that believe and think just like them are. Yeah. You know, and those are just two, two examples. Two examples. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think it is difficult to replicate the pod of people thinking deeply together, uh, in the benefit to that. And also I think, um, 
you know, you look at, you know, really what college is. And I, I wonder sometimes, because you, you hear the arguments of, okay, well, like, what's the point in taking these general classes? What's the point in taking whatever class? I think it's really easy to connect the dots looking backwards and say that was worthless. That really didn't move me forward much. But I wonder if that's kind of the price of admission sometimes to finding what maybe does speak to you is, you know, kind of casting your net wide and owning in on something specific. And, you know, invariably you're going to stumble across some classes that maybe just aren't really moving the needle for you. But I do think that that is uh, a very understandable question from students that are looking at investing, you know, a serious chunk of time yeah. and money. And again, in a category that maybe isn't as easily defined as, let's say, engineering, where you are getting some certification to be able to pass through to the other side, and there's a clear objective on the other side. Business is, is very vague. Yeah, um, completely and utterly. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, I, I sit there and I, I guess as I think, there were definitely classes that I went through that uh, I did not take away really much of anything. Unfortunately, you know, those actually weren't at Regis. And I'm not just saying that because I'm speaking to you. <laughs> um, but I can remember getting out of class and just, you know, getting, it was like, you're just doing it just to get it done with. And I wonder, I guess, as you guys think, you know, before each semester, before each year, you know, how do we, again, cultivate that experience to where students really are transforming in a way that isn't just going through a textbook and consuming more knowledge. I know we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to push you maybe a little bit further to help me understand, you know, what is it in the innovative space that Regis can help or any college can help kids with to maybe think differently? Yeah, I, I think that that is a fantastic question. And I'm, I'm going to point out a couple things that I've written and, and then I'm going to bring in a little bit of being a dad of a college freshman and a college junior where I've toured, I don't know, 35 different colleges and universities from coast to coast yeah. in the last uh, three or four years and, and speak a little bit about that. Um, you know, I've written a couple things. One is an article in, in a journal that actually originated out of here, out of Regis called Jesuit Higher Education, a journal. And that was, are we delivering on the promise of a Jesuit education? And, and we define that the promise really is a transformation. Mm -hmm. And so a transformation by its very nature means we're supposed to figure out where you started and where you ended. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I've spent my years, uh, I spent decades talking with faculty. And, you know, this is what faculty do. Uh, this is what faculty can easily tend to do is they say, you're not going to see the ROI for what I do until about 20 years from now. And, and you know what? I think that's a load of crap, frankly. Yeah. It's a, I mean, that's a, I wish I could, I wish I could make that promise to, to clients. Yeah. Well, I mean, and here's what I say, you know, if you're only with us for four years, you can't even say five years after you graduate, you turned into X and we caused that. Right. No, I mean, that's some gross miss. Maybe we correlate to that, Yeah. but we never caused it. You had yeah. five years plus a whole lifetime of additional life right. that made you that. Right. Um, you know, in, in, in college and university experiences, but one, but one part mm -hmm. of, of what it is that, that we're doing. I had a second thing that I, that I've written that I wanted to bring in here and I, it'll come to me any second, but I can't remember what the no. second, what the second thing was. Um, but, uh, you know, as I've toured colleges, 
here's what my two daughters, they know they want to be successful. They've defined that a little bit differently for each one of them, but they're, my oldest is really afraid to make a mistake. And, and here's, here's what I say to them. I have a biology degree, a master's degree in exercise physiology, a PhD in education <laughs> and a postdoc in marketing and management. Um, your first life is not your only life. That's true. My, my wife graduated from university of Massachusetts with a full dance degree, was a professional, um, modern dancer in New York city. Um, we met in graduate school, getting our exercise physiology degrees. No kidding. And now she works in public health. Look at that. Like your first life is not your only life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's part of this conversation, but my youngest daughter, when she was touring colleges and they say, well, what, do you, what, what do you want to major in? And she said, I don't know. I don't know because I think part of it is she doesn't want to be wrong, um, and choose the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Um, there's no way to test things out. Mm -hmm. There's a very small number of colleges that say, I mean, and, I'm not sure it's a reasonable expectation that you should dictate what your life is going to look like when you're 17 years old. There are some, you know, it's interesting just being in a lot of high school classes. I ask that question of who here knows what they want to be. And there's always at least a handful. And I don't know if they're raising their hand just to be different. Um, but it's a lot of times the, the, it is the engineering crowd that really enjoys the orderly nature of things yeah. and the idea of having a processed pathway. And it's difficult to sit there and not say, you have no idea. Um, but I also have no idea. They could, be, they could very well be right. But what is it that you see in higher education that you don't like? I guess if if you if you're defining what it is, you know, sometimes defining what it is that you want is defining what it is that you yep. don't want. And I wonder as you guys look at, okay, how is it that we make this worth the investment of time and money? Um, what are some of the things that you aren't a big fan of that maybe you do see other higher institutions, other classrooms uh, in the business realm? I, you know, I think that's such a, a wonderful question. I'm probably going to uh, twist it up just like, yeah. uh, just like any guest does to answer the question <laughs> they really want to answer themselves. <laughs> At least um, there's some modesty there. I, I'm going to tell you what I'm dreaming about in higher ed. Okay. And, and that'll tell you, uh, well, I mean, here's what I don't like. We are unclear of what it is we are selling your students. I mean, and I, um, you know, I said, I run our MBA. I'm the chair of our graduate business program. And we have a lot of online, a lot of online degrees. Mm -hmm. And and my mantra with my faculty is we are not selling courses. Mm -hmm. It's not what we're selling. <laughs> um, and, and I think that mismatch uh, inside of a higher ed institution of what we are actually offering is, is not necessarily figured out by most higher education institutions. I mean, even our own interim president said to us, because the cost is high. I mean, we are a private, we are a private Catholic school. Um, she said, you know, we are, we are charging a Nordstrom price. Are we delivering a Nordstrom level product? And, and I would argue we are not. I mean, if, if there was no Dave law, there would be no student experience. I, 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 I right. I mean, and that is a, that is a lack of investment. In, yeah. in what we say we are going to do. So in my dream, um, we offer you a whole experience. 
And I always, uh, you know, for years I've been saying you experience three curricula when you come to college and, and please, I mean, any parent that's listening to this podcast, please hear me say you experience the curricula. Those are the classes. Sometimes it's merely the exercises of writing the papers and rewriting the papers and doing the reading, which your students aren't going to do mainly. Um, that's an exercise. It's not the thing that you're here to do. Mm. So that's part of the curricula. Um, you experience a co-curricula. And if you're a good institution, you plan very strategically the co-curricular offerings to align and back up and reinforce the curricular offerings. And part of what we do in higher ed is we've just given you a larger menu. If you've ever watched the show Restaurant Impossible, Robert Irvine comes in and the first thing he says is your menu is too large. <laughs> um, you know, that's, yeah. that's funny you say that. Yeah, I mean, you see like in and out yeah. several that have. Yeah, this is what we're good very at. Very simple right? menus. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think that is the, we're so afraid in higher ed of not getting one more student that we've tried to make it accessible for all. I mean, you look in the high school settings and you look at charter schools that are doing this, this, and not this. Um, I think higher ed ought to be more like that. We ought to get serious about what we're about. We ought to be known for something. The small regional institutions really struggle with this idea. Liberal arts institutions really struggle with this idea. I mean, and that's why you argue, you know, we don't want to be a nursing school. We don't want to be a business school. We want to be a liberal arts school. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as we help people start businesses, this is what we say to them all the time. The value of your business is not determined by you. The value of your business is determined by your customer. Yeah. Um, so you have this co-curricular. Really good institutions have an extracurricular component too. They have a life of the student that is there. And uh, you know, uh, I'm older, so uh, you know, I remember classes. I mean, this is gonna date me. One of my professors was actually testifying in the OJ trial. <laughs> I love that professor. He taught an animal behavior class. He held his review sessions at, um, I'm a Syracuse university grad at varsity pizza. And, um, th this is how old I am. He would buy the beer Yeah, yeah. for us all to drink. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, not happening probably. No, 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 no. We can't. I mean, there's yeah. the extracurricular people typically don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole because yeah. of liability issues. Right. But the good institutions figure out how to do this. Some of them do it naturally. Mm -hmm. The big sports schools, the extracurricular that's built there. Mm -hmm. The co-curricular is attending to get pride in the institution. The extracurricular is actually built in in what you do before and around those events. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. So you broke it down into a few different categories or a few different pieces. Um, and in a way define kind of what, you know, you, you don't like. And I think, you know, as I, as I reflect back on just being at Regis, it's interesting. There's a few classes that I had no expectation behind. Uh, at, one of them actually was uh, a gender studies class. And I remember thinking like, I got to take this freaking gender class. This is a waste of time. Like, what is this shit, you know? Yeah. And um, it was a, it had to do with, I think, I can't remember the exact name, um, but I actually went through it. I remember within the course, we studied both genders and maybe it's a different definition for gender studies today than it was when I was there, but we, we studied both genders and we really broke it apart and I actually pulled, you know, far more away from that class than I did my economics class that I took here. And you would say, you'd probably say, yeah, economics relates more to what it is that I do now. Yeah. 
but somehow that gender studies class, like what we did stuck with me more. And I think, so that's, that's something worth noting, I think, for a lot of kids is you don't know what will speak to you and what you might take away from these different classes. And in a lot of ways, college forces you to cast that net. Whereas if we knew exactly what was best for us, we'd probably be doing it. We'd all be in shape with six packs and, yes. and mansions, you know, but simply knowing doesn't, doesn't translate to that transformation all the time. We had, uh, there's a wonderful... And, and this is a wonderful uh, book and resource to share share with your with your listeners, especially that are the parents. There's a wonderful book written by a gentleman named Ken Bain. Mm-hmm. Ken, it's called "What the Best College Teachers Do." And for years, I used to teach other faculty with this book. But it, he's a historian by training. It, it it takes 64 different faculty across all kinds of different disciplines and tries to summarize what really good college professors do. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things he lands on is the best college professors create an expectation failure for the student, right? And I think the economics, right? I mean, supply and demand, there's nothing that you expect from that and there's nothing to upend that expectation. Yeah. Um, gender studies, perhaps that was the place where you were like, oh, I thought the world worked like this, but lo and behold, for somebody not me, it doesn't work like that. Um, and you start to think, I mean, you would have been here at the exact time when we implemented the integrative core. I can't, yeah, it was, it, was the, it was the core class. And I mean, that's why I had to take it my yeah. senior year because I transferred in my senior year. And I just remember thinking like, these bullshit core classes that I have to take, like this is such a waste yeah. of time. But I actually, I, you know, I'm, I really am grateful that I took at least two of them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the other two, not as much. But. I taught one and, uh, you know, it was called the cultures of health and their impact. And, and really we started that class from having a conversation of what is health. Yeah. Um, you know, and everybody thinks of physical health and, um, you know, given today's world, everybody also thinks of mental health. Right. We're a Jesuit school. So people yeah. talk about some spiritual health. Right. And then you're like, great, this is awesome. So here's our task in this class. Um, you have a definition that you started with. You're gonna go in. You're gonna go interview for one hour, as groups, five different human beings. You're gonna interview somebody that was born in the U.S., somebody that wasn't born in the U.S. You're gonna interview somebody that's gay and somebody that's straight. You're gonna interview at least one person of color and somebody that is Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we mix all of these. You know, somebody from a different country, uh, somebody from the United States, and and five interviews. We taught them really quickly how to code those interviews. This was an amazing thing because you come back from the interviews and it'd be like, well, what did you find out? And they'd be like, well, I found out that, you know, this isn't really this. I'd be like, did you know? Yeah. So as soon as you type out that recording, we'll all look and see if that's what you heard right. instead of you interpreting somebody else's words. That is different. And so we ran that exercise. And at the end of, you know, we heard things like um, we had a woman on campus, Monica Vecarelli. And so uh, she has this wonderfully large Italian family and somebody got to interview her. And, and they said, what's health for you? And she said, food. And, and you know, the 20 year old thinks, oh, nutrition, like I'm counting my macros, mm-hmm. right? I mean, listen, I had a bodybuilder in that class is carrying right. around, get gallons of water to drink right. all day and like four containers of chicken. Right. Um, and, you know, she says it's food. And when they get into the conversation about why, because food gathers her family every week. Interesting. Had nothing to do with the nutrients in the food. But you have to ask some follow-up questions to get there. That's I had to teach point. them how to ask questions. I mean, that was the funny part. Yeah. Because when you ask questions, you tend to ask questions in a, can I get a response that affirms what I already know? Right. Somewhat of a leading question. Yeah. Yeah. 
I had a, a kid that just called me. He was interviewing for JP Morgan and he was all psyched up for this interview and he was curious what he should bring. He said they typically ask questions about, you know, uh, this family's asking about this stock. How do you respond to it? And he had kind of a, a written out response that went into the details of why that person might want to buy the stock. And I said, hold on. You will blow them away in this interview if you say, hey, I'm just curious, you know, that's one specific stop. I guess you're bringing that up for a reason. Help me understand why. Yeah. You will blow those interviews away, and uh, the interviewers, that is, and uh, went really well for him. But I, I think it's also just a helpful form of thinking. Unfortunately, I don't think I really got that um, as much when I was in college, and that could have just been by the nature of, you know, the courses that I was in. But there was, there was one other thing I was, I was thinking about as far as, you know, how can college really differentiate itself from just, you know, an online school of sorts, right? Like, because again, you can find all of this online. And what came to mind for me um, is field trips. So I can remember, I think just about every field trip I went on from the time I was four or five years old until I graduated. And if you were to ask me about my economics class, which I was in for three or four months, you know, I can remember the classroom, but it'd be difficult for me to pinpoint days. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, part of what college can offer, maybe something that's worth pursuing more, is how do you craft those novel experiences as a part of the curriculum so that it's not just knowledge. It's getting out yep. into the world and having more field trips. And Michael, I, I, w- I would push that even further. I mean, how would you push it to a point where it becomes the central part as opposed to the additional part? Right. Right. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, if you grew up going to church and once a month they bring up, you know, the children get to go up and you have a sermon that actually you can understand for once, um, as opposed to the biblical sermon um, and you're like, man, if church was like that, like a lot more people would come. <laughs> and, and I think there's, uh, you know, it's where you put the centrality. Yeah. And, you know, your point is well taken about, about the field trips. But now we start talking about, and, and please hear me say, your college professors didn't go to school to learn how to teach. They went to school to learn how to study the thing they're a professor in. If you're lucky, somebody has come along somewhere and taught them something about teaching. If not, they repeat the way they were taught. And there's research to back that up. And so what that means, I mean, and I, I remember for decades fighting against the lecture, the didactic sit in the hallway. I, I went to a big enough school. You know, I went to classes with 200 people in an auditorium. It sucked. It was terrible, right? I um, relate. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> University of Alaska, yeah. Yeah, I mean, those big schools, that's kind of how they do it in mass production models. And that is an industrial holdover. But, um, you know, this is why you're seeing schools pop up like uh, Minerva, right? And I don't know if you know that model. Minerva travels all over the world, and you learn while you're traveling. Interesting. Well, that'll attract some wanderlust teenagers. Uh, well, I, I think it does. The, the funny part Especially is if they're, they're uber serious about their education yeah. because yeah. You, you have it's on you to make sense of those things. So, you know, if you're reading this philosophy book and you have to understand, you know, we happen to be in Milan. Yeah. You have to understand why we're in Milan and why it relates. Settles in differently. Settles in completely differently. And so. 
That's awesome. I'm old and I've had the glory of leaving multiple disciplines. Find a college that, that the professors aren't so concerned with who you think they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and they're just there and they're having fun and exploring. Those are the ones that are going to develop the field trips of the experiences. Yeah. You know, and I think, um, I mean, I argue with my colleagues, let's make our business competition worthy of credit. I mean, even my MBA students who have been winners of, of this competition that last four months, by the way, have said, I've learned more here about what it means to start and operate a business than I do in all of my other classes. Yeah. I mean, I took the capstone class here and our capstone presentation was presenting a business. And I remember uh, sitting, I was actually up on stage and I was presenting just at least my part of it. And I remember I, I kind of got hit with like, oh, this is something that I like, I enjoy, and I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job with. Yeah. Um, was just presenting. And, you know, I think, again, learning by way of application, we had a live audience that was judging us. So you didn't want to look like an idiot, right? Um, but I, again, I just wonder if I'm, if I'm looking at college and what it can still truly offer that an online school cannot, especially given COVID and everything that just happened, everybody being online, is that, that experience, right? So how can it just run with that experience in a way, whether it's field trips, whether it's uh, you know, more uh, you know, group learning where you are working with individuals that you otherwise wouldn't work Absolutely. with, um, how do they push that forward in a way to hopefully leave behind some of the archaic 200 person lecture hall rooms that are just there because you kind of just have to get the class done. Yeah. Well, you know, I think if you're looking from the outside, as you pull up the syllabi for these courses, um, that's, that should be the research. Mm -hmm. Don't look, don't look at the stuff admissions send you, right? Those are staged things. Um, dig in and try and find syllabi of the classes that you're taking and figure out. That's a great point. Figure, I never did that. By the well, way. I mean, why would you, right? I mean, how would you know as a consumer? Listen, I like I'm, I'm pre-internet going to college. Yeah. I, I went to whatever I knew um, and whatever sent me a postcard. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I had no idea yeah. what else was out there. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, do that. Don't, don't plan an admission trip. Show up on campus and walk across the quad and see if people will talk to you. Yeah. Um, see if you can go in and everybody's sitting at a table with their headphones in or they're doing something else yeah. with one another. Yeah. And, and, and this is the one thing it's unreasonable to expect education to educate a thousand points of light at a time. Right. Right. No business scales where they do everything for every single individual customer, no business, no successful large business. No. Um, That's a great point. We shouldn't expect education to do thousand points of light. This is really what the promise of online only education is. Yeah. I educate you. Yeah. And I, listen, I mean, I, I teach, I just taught a marketing strategy class online and you know, the students I'm always, I'm kind of disappointed, but kind of not disappointed when they say the biggest takeaway for me is how to work in groups with other people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it's nothing about marketing. Well, yeah. And I think that's, but again, if there's something that it can hold on to and, and really run with, because it's like, you look at marketing and I remember some of the marketing textbooks that I was looking at. I mean, the medium that they were speaking to in these textbooks was already so outdated totally. that if you're teaching to the medium being in this case, television and radio, no offense, both my parents were in that. 
uh, sorry, Kim and Kim, uh, both my parents are Kim. That makes it even weirder. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, if you're teaching to just the medium, that's going to change. Whereas if you're teaching to the decision-making and you're teaching to the ability to work with others, to collaborate, to continually flex and adjust, you're probably setting that person up for a much better future. And that's where I look at some of those classes and I think, like, this is just pointless. Yeah. You know, like, why, why am I learning about this medium if Facebook and YouTube are quite clearly the primary method for just about every business, um, at least most small businesses? Um, well, this goes to that NFT component. Yeah. The other thing that I, w- I would say as you're looking for colleges, look for age range amongst the faculty. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you, you sh- I mean, and with all respect, due respect to my peers, yeah. you don't want to learn with only a large collection of 60 year olds. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Look, look for, look for the 25 year old professor that's in there. Right. Um, because the 60 year olds might not even be aware that those new media are are the places where this stuff is, is coming through. But I wonder, and again, as I look at that, it's like, it might be difficult for the school to be always ahead from innovative stance, like what medium they should be teaching to. And so, you know, perhaps what's, you know, more, valuable. It's like, okay, we know Facebook is the medium, let's say. So for the marketing course, you know, well, every kid has a hundred dollars that they have to set up a Facebook campaign with, run it for whatever their business is and just see how many clicks they can get on it. Right. And they'll be sure to pay attention to those data points, but most importantly, they'll be sure to see how that experience goes working with the other individuals in that group and just being on the other side and having worked with now marketing departments and, you know, other departments, you know, I can definitely, definitely, uh, definitely say that how you work with individuals is so critically important to your progression in whatever uh, domain you're looking at, that if you assume that just by knowing you'll be okay, you're going to be really in a place of a rude awakening pretty quickly. Yes. Um, so, Anyways, uh, Michael, here's a lot, here's, a lot of points there. Yeah. I mean, here's, here's one thing, Michael, that I talk about all the time and, um, of what businesses, and, and this is really, you know, this is what gives me hope in this, in this business school here, the Anderson college of business and computing here at Regis university is, um, if you understand that business is in business of changing another human being's behavior you will start to think about what you're doing and how you're doing it differently. And everybody says, well, but what about this business? Listen, if you're trying to get somebody to part with their money, you are trying to get them to change their behavior. There's some change that has to occur. It's not like they go get more money to do your thing also. Yeah. It's they're making trade-off decisions. Yeah. You know, and I the example I gave my class on Wednesday night was, listen, Comcast, I will tell you, that bill sucks. That company, their customer service is just, it's hard. Yeah. And every two years when the contract goes back up again, mm-hmm. I go, oh, it's time. Mm-hmm. You know, I own these 18 other subscription services, but I would need to sit down and create like a playbook so everybody else in the house could figure out how to log in and out of these other yeah. subscription yeah, services. Few. It's just not worth, Right. it's not worth my time right now. Right, right. Um, could I get my car insurance cheaper? Certainly. Right. It's not worth my time to go do it. Right. Every business is trying to get you to change your behavior, mm-hmm. right? Whether that's use a new beauty product, eat a new kind of food, mm-hmm. um, make an investment in a, in a stock. Every business is trying to change a human behavior. Mm-hmm. 
And so if you don't think that business is human, it's not B2B, it's not B2C, mm-hmm. it's H to H, human to human. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think if you understand that, that that's really a help. No, it is. And uh, I think, again, um, that goes back to, you know, what it is that business school can offer still uh, is truly, you know, not, you know, teaching that behavior and simulating uh, through group work and uh, these pods of people, the ability to, uh, you know, really, you know, try these different just decisions out. And that's not to say that college is for everyone, but I think that's really to address, uh, you know, some of these folks that are out there that are maybe uh, self-made entrepreneurs that say college is just worthless. You can learn all of this, you know, on your own. And uh, I think that's, it's a slippery slope to go down on the extremities on both sides. One, that it's completely worthless or that, it's the only route that you Absolutely. can take. Um, I think that's just, uh, you know, a little bit of a exaggeration, but anyways, well, I appreciate your time. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to close on, but, uh, you know, again, this has been a really enjoyable conversation going through not only the innovation center, but I think also, um, what business school can still offer. So thank you, Cam. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Nice talking with you. Thanks.